One of these beliefs may be about to murder you. So The Outline World Dispatch. It's Thursday, September 21st, 2017. I'm Jeffy Haza. Today on The Dispatch, Dan Taylor talks to the Southern Poverty Law Center about what they consider a hate group. Does the organization that we're evaluating consider an entire other group of people to be lesser? And Derek Gaillot reads from Tom Brady's new book. Sometimes I think I'm the most hydrated person in the world. And I watch way too many Jake Paul videos. Good morning, Jake Paulers. What's going on? Here's the dispatch. Power. When you hear coverage about hate groups in America, you also tend to hear about another group, the Southern Poverty Law Center, or the SPLC. They maintain a database of hate groups around the country. Writer Dan Taylor wanted to know what it takes to wind up on that list and how the SPLC goes about tracking hate groups. Hey, Dan. Hey, how are you? What compelled you to look into the Southern Poverty Law Center now? Well, um, I had uh, written a piece somewhere else about a uh, hate group that had been uh, listed, and they contacted me and said that they disagree with that listing. So I thought it would be interesting to look into, you know, how the Southern Poverty Law Center comes up with these listings, which uh, sometimes can be controversial, especially in light of the whole Charlottesville incident and a lot of the hate groups that have been uh, uh, highlighted around the country. Um, it seemed the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center was one of the, the biggest organization that was highlighting a lot of these hate groups and where they are. Yeah, I mean, Southern Poverty Law Center is definitely a name that you hear come up a lot, but I think a lot of people might not have a really clear understanding of exactly what the organization is. Yeah, I mean, so they've been around for for decades uh, fighting for um, uh, civil rights. I mean, they, they go back a ways. So I talked to Heidi Birch at the Southern Poverty Law Center. I am the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is the part of the SPLC that tracks extremists and hate groups. And she says that they're the only organization that actually creates a uh, hate group map. What specifically makes a hate group a hate group, at least in the eyes of the SPLC? The way uh, SPLC seems to view it as if you're demonizing a certain group of people based on uh, sort of their inherent characteristics. We look at, you know, somewhere between two and 3,000 organizations overall each year. And we actually have two lists. We have one list of hate groups and another of extreme anti-government groups, or, you know, militia-type groups. And so what we're looking for is does the organization that we're evaluating – consider an entire other group of people uh, to be lesser. Uh, like, for example, she says, even though she gets all the bait or the SPLC gets a lot of flack for including uh, anti-LGBT organizations, uh, she says that they only include ones that specifically attempt to, to suggest that LGBT people are more likely to be pedophiles or just defamatory, things like that. She said if, if they listed everyone who was anti-LGBT or every you know, uh, everyone who took these stands that homosexuality was a sin, they they couldn't possibly list them all. And where where do they find the groups to classify? You know, how do these groups kind of land on their desk? There's a lot of research that goes into finding these organizations, and they have some sources. And, and interestingly, one of the main sources is some of the the forums that the the um, that these people frequent themselves where they talk about these issues and reveal certain organizations that are, you know, passing around information. So, for example, when they shut down the Stormfront website uh, recently, 
that actually, although Heidi was quick to say it was a good thing overall, it created some problems for them because they got a lot of good information from posts on Stormfront that helped them find a lot of these uh, organizations. An amazing thing happened after Charlottesville, which is white supremacist hate sites uh, and material for a variety of reasons started disappearing from the web as tech companies decided that they didn't want to be in this business anymore. You know, we had lobbied many of them for years to do this uh, to no avail. But right after Charlottesville, Network Solutions, which is the registrar for Stormfront.org, decided they weren't going to host that thing anymore. And Stormfront disappeared. Now, Stormfront was the largest hate site on the web, the oldest as well. It went up in 1995. And it had more than 300,000 registered users. And the information these folks would post from, you know, events, descriptions of their meetings, it was very important to us to be able to monitor Stormfront for intelligence about the white supremacist movement. So it remains to be seen if a lot of the people who are on Stormfront pop up somewhere else. But for us, we've just lost a very important uh, intelligence tool. So once the Southern Poverty Law Center says this group is a hate group, what are the implications of that for that particular group? Well, uh, not necessarily any. I mean, there are a lot of groups on there. Perhaps even if they're listed there, no one will ever notice that they're on the list. But uh, that's, you know, part of SPLC's mission is to make people at least aware of these organizations. And, uh, you know, then it's sort of up to how the public treats them. An interesting thing about the situation with Donald Trump is that so many of these groups see him as a leader and are very kind of overt in their support of him. So does that put the Southern Poverty Law Center in an interesting position or a difficult position when it comes to saying these groups are hate groups, but they also have the support of the president? Yeah, Heidi said there was a lot of um, uh, activity uh, sort of during the run-up of Trump's campaign as in the course after his election. Uh, There was certainly a lot of uh, energization and legitimizing of a lot of these groups There's no question that Trump has energized the white supremacist movement. Uh, We have seen since he started his campaign in 2015 uh, a sea change among white supremacists. Uh, Before that time, these groups had no interest whatsoever in politics. They didn't like the Democrats because they viewed that as a party of, you know, ethnic interests, basically. And they didn't like Republicans. They called them the stupid party because they felt that the Republican Party didn't appeal directly to white interests. But when Trump came out that first day in Trump Tower and talked about Mexicans as rapists, the white supremacist movement in this country felt like they had found their guy. They actually began to call Trump glorious leader uh, in many circles. And what we saw was a jump in the number of hate groups between 2015 and 2016. uh, And the groups that grew in that time period were ones that attached themselves to the Trump candidacy. Uh, sort of an indication of just, um, you know, how many of these groups are out there and, you know, they're, they're not far from being thrust in the limelight if uh, the right circumstances arise. Thanks, Dan. All right. I appreciate it. Culture. The following are selections from Tom Brady's new book, 
the TB12 method, how to achieve a lifetime of sustained peak performance. One of the advantages that I have over younger athletes is that at age 40, I'm pliable and I have experience. The body and the brain need recentering, rest, and recovery via sleep, meditation, and recovery innovations such as tech-enabled sleepwear. I also remember thinking, my ability to sustain my peak performance over the past 10 years is almost unbelievable to me. Since my ACL recovery nine years ago, my knee hasn't bothered or limited me a single day. In fact, two years ago, I took a hit on my knee during a practice requiring an MRI. The doctors who read the MRI joked afterward that my knee looked so healthy, they seriously doubted I played professional football. Sometimes I think I'm the most hydrated person in the world. If an injury is the result of excessive force, why don't we figure out ways the body can absorb that force? Hold yourself, not your doctor or your coach, accountable. When I was growing up and playing outside in the sun, I got sunburned a lot. I was a fair-skinned Irish boy after all. These days, even if I get an adequate amount of sun, I won't get a sunburn, which I credit to the amount of water I drink. I always hydrate afterward too, to keep my skin from peeling. When I once told that to my sister, she said, do you mean I don't have to use all those moisturizers and facial products to keep my skin looking good? I should just drink as much water as you do? I think you should market your TB12 electrolytes as a beauty product. I just laughed. Culture. Jake Paul, the angular-faced Ohio native whose YouTube account boasts more than 10 million subscribers, is the latest poster child for the confounding growth of online celebrities. You're sexy. You're a savage. Jake Paul is for life. The 20-year-old YouTuber and Disney Channel star calls himself the first social media influencer to become a series regular on TV. I want to cannonball myself from here to the Pacific Ocean. He's been at the center of a number of improbable controversies, including a public rap beef with his brother, Logan. Oh, hey, by the way, welcome to the top, little brother. Feels good, huh? But let's not forget how you got here. Most recently, Jake announced an upcoming track with Gucci Mane in a really uncomfortable video featuring him and Gucci working in the studio together. If y'all sleeping on Jake Paul, y'all finna know I'm talking about we got a banger. <laughs> you killed it. You killed it. It sounds like Jake is saying kilt, like the Scottish menswear piece, in some kind of attempt to sound like what he thinks rappers sound like. From an economic standpoint, the move is prudent for Gucci Mane. Jake Paul is part of a growing segment of social media influencers who wield an enormous amount of power in the entertainment industry. They model for fashion labels, release singles and collaborations, and they appear in film and television, all as a means of leveraging their online fan base. And then I went to Disney because I'm an actor, bro. But let's consider how online fan bases exist and grow in the first place. Of Jake Paul's 10 million subscribers, what percentage subscribed simply because he already had a large following? Do each of Jake's 10 million subscribers have the same level of devotion? Do they all actually like him? How many dormant, duplicate, or bot accounts are in this 10 million subscriber count? Obviously, there are a lot of people legitimately interested in Jake Paul. But the metrics displayed on YouTube serve mainly to inflate the celebrity of one of the platform's stars. On the creator side, YouTube provides analytics like minutes viewed, audience demographics, and click-through rate, so Jake Paul has a comprehensive view of how his fan base actually looks and behaves. 
But for people on the outside, we envision a group larger than the population of New York City capable of actually referring to themselves as Jake Paulers with a straight face. Good morning, Jake Paulers. What's going on? I hope you guys are having a great day. This morning, I woke up and then I decided to wake everybody else up. Public-facing metrics like these create a feedback loop within online services. The researcher Nancy Beim argues in her paper, Data Not Seen, The Uses and Shortcomings of Social Media Metrics, that this feedback loop exists. Quote, It is part of the politics of these platforms to set up counts in such a way that users become more engaged with the site while trying to increase their numbers. Higher numbers are widely taken to imply more legitimacy, popularity, visibility, and influence, and thus more economic potential. Online services like YouTube were built around the idea of distributing power to the individual user. But thinking of these platforms as pure meritocracies, where power isn't exerted unevenly, is fundamentally dishonest. Let's consider the popular memes and modes of online speech generated by black creators only to be repurposed by white video stars. Jake Paul's music video, It's Every Day Bro, has amassed 123 million views. It's essentially a kid's bop iteration of popular young hip-hop acts, like Made in Tokyo or dancers like She Loves Michi, none of whom will likely see the astronomical view counts that Jake Paul receives. The factors that make an artist viable are changing. It's not about Jake Paul's music or his acting or his terrible dancing. It's about his ability to generate numbers in a very specific ecosystem. The outward-facing metric is a tool within online platforms that allows for an extreme consolidation of power. Imagine if every Jake Paul video was presented without the tacit endorsement of an enormous view count. There would probably be a population of teenagers drawn to his antics, but it seems less likely that he'd catch the attention of the man who made the greatest rap song ever. That's it for The Dispatch. We're here every Monday through Thursday with new episodes. Remember to tell a friend if you like the show or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts. I'm Jeffy Haza. Have a great weekend. More stories on Monday.